Hello and welcome to Inside Briefing, the podcast from the Institute for Government. I'm Bronwyn Maddox. It was already a difficult summer. Many Brits had begun to attempt some kind of holiday abroad. Now those plans have come to a crashing halt with the government's decision to remove Spain from its list of safe countries, the reintroduction of the 14-day quarantine for those coming back, and the warning that more countries could go on that list. Having been accused of moving too slowly back in March, Boris Johnson is now accused by some of moving too fast. Is this a sign of chaotic government decision-making or a new steely determination from the Prime Minister in the face of growing infection rates across the continent and talk a second wave there? The pain in Spain dominated the week's news, but all the same, the government launched a new healthy living drive and a plan to get everyone to take up the Prime Minister's passion for cycling. Is this going to work? And Johnson has now formally committed himself to a public inquiry on coronavirus, something he will not have wanted but essentially could not avoid. But can that inquiry actually deliver the answers people want and quickly enough to be of any use? We're going to look into the do's and don'ts for handling inquiries well. And I've got a great panel to talk about all of this. Alex Thomas, a former civil servant himself, now leads our civil service work. Hi, Alex. Hi, Bronwyn. And I'm very glad to be joined as well by Jill Rutter, our senior fellow and former number 10 official. Jill, warm welcome. Thank you. And very warm welcome to Sir Lawrence Friedman, Emeritus Professor of War Studies at King's College London and a former member of the Iraq War Inquiry, who's been writing already about the first stages of the handling of coronavirus. Laurie, thank you very much indeed for joining us. Hi, good to be with you. Great. Well, look, let's start with travel. Um, Spain, the wreckage of the holiday season as tour operators and airlines see it. The change in policy happened so quickly that Grant Shapps, the transport minister, was already heading off to Spain with his family and having hurriedly returned home, he, along with many others, is now self-isolating for the required 14 days. Spain has understandably reacted rather angrily to this change, arguing that the rise in cases was confined to particular regions, not the whole country, including its islands. But the UK government's gone for a blanket ban, saying that it needs to head off what it is, is describing as a second wave. Alex, was this suddenness necessary? Uh, well, I, I think, yes, it probably was. Uh, the question, as you implied there, is uh, whether it could have been done in a more um, uh, sort of subtle way in terms of the regions and, and, and parts of the country. But um, I mean, the, the government was uh, responding to uh, a, a relatively significant increase in cases in Spain from you know around about 1,000 to over 2,000 uh, cases a day. Uh, that compares with the numbers here that are uh, tracking at around sort of 720, 720. Five, so they were they were responding to a change in in, in circumstances. Um, I uh, I think probably you know announcing it at uh, uh, you know early mid evening on a Saturday night uh, uh, with uh, effectively sort of near immediate effect uh, uh, could have been handled a little bit more uh, uh, calmly and uh, with um, sort of the ability to provide kind of clearer advice to the the travellers concerned. I mean, the, the other aspect, of course, as you implied in the in, in your introduction, Bronwyn, is the government is desperate to get ahead of this, to be to be uh, seen uh, to act rapidly to these sorts of developments, given the accusations that uh, of of, of um, responding too slowly earlier in the pandemic. Now, Jill, I mean, your first take on this is it good use of new evidence or poor planning? I think it looks like um, like quite poor planning in many ways. I mean, the government was clearly quite keen to reinstate travel uh, and to encourage people to say, yes, it's go, you can get back to normal, and but didn't set out, I think, at the start, the risks. I got an earful yesterday from some friends of mine who decided to take a weekend in Spain, uh, went out on the Friday, I think, back on the Saturday, or the Sunday or Monday, and they said, actually, they're plane load of people coming back mostly from weekends in Spain, 
uh, was full of people who are actually saying they you know, weren't going to really observe this self-isolation. So I think it's going to be a massive compliance set of issues with people who felt they were blindsided by government uh, resentments from people who are self-employed suddenly told that they can't earn an income for a couple of weeks that they'd been expecting. So I think, you know, it'd be interesting to see whether many people beyond grant shops actually do that. Because one of the lessons from countries like Australia and New Zealand on enforcing these quarantines is that really, 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 you have to have pretty draconian measures to make them work. We've seen that flare up down in Melbourne, which has been caused to a very large extent by uh, by actually problems in the way in which they were supervising people. But in Australia and New Zealand, they put people into quarantine hotels to make sure they stay there. There have been issues uh, with the uh, laxness around some of the enforcement there. So I think, you know, is this more than tokenism? I don't know. And they also seem to have managed to alienate the Spanish government really quite badly by this blanket ban when Spain can legitimately say, well, you know, look at Leicester, we could apply a ban to the whole of the UK, you need a more differentiated response. They haven't really explained why they didn't go for that. Yes, uh, very very good points there. And we've begun to have a bit more talk this week about the um, the the way that uh, self-isolation really hits different groups of people completely differently. And those, as you said, those self-employed or those who have to go to work in order to uh, earn their income um, are really hit very hard by this, whereas those can work at home um, it's really no trouble at all to stay at home for 14 days. Uh, and, you know, shouldn't there be some more support for those uh, those um, who are hit hard by quarantine if um, the quarantine is going to be any work? So you've heard, you've heard those questions being raised, but not actually answers. Laurie, let me c- come to you, though, because you, you, you were writing quite early on with the benefit of your long experience on the Iraq inquiry about the need for a narrative not, not um, influenced um, as much as possible by, by hindsight, of just trying to keep a narrative of government decisions. And I, I wonder how you're, you're going about your own assessment of this. Well, I mean, I think one of the things you can do when we're looking, say, the thing we've just been talking about with a sudden uh, transport restriction put on, quarantines and so on, is one of the, the things people have done with hindsight is to insist that sometime quite early on in the, in the year we should have imposed these sorts of restrictions um, quite draconianly before anybody had actually experienced uh, coronavirus in the way that we have experienced it. And it provides quite an interesting indicator of just how difficult that would have been. Just imagine if we, if a government had already uh, decided to do this sort of thing when there had been very limited exposure to the virus in the UK, possibly no deaths at all, which would have been the time to impose restrictions like this. It's a good indication of how hindsight uh, has <coughs> led to accusations of, of sort of the government uh, not doing what it should have done, when in reality it, these sort of things are very hard to do. The, the, the other point that, that one can learn from what's going on at the moment, which I think Jill raised, was the importance of starting trying to look at this not in terms of national outbreaks, but outbreaks within countries. Um, it's one of the, I think, the legitimate complaints of, of the Spanish government, which I think recognises that they do have some quite big problems, but they're not everywhere. So I think one of one of the problems I think in evaluating not just the UK response, everybody's response, is we've tended to look at these things nationally, 
rather than uh, break it down and look at um, where outbreaks have occurred. Now we're doing that more. I think our, the testing is much better now. Uh, we've got a better idea of where the problems are. I think we can see that one of the problems that the UK faced was uh, we just had lots of outbreaks. Uh, we didn't. It wasn't just concentrated, uh, say, the north uh, uh, as Italy was, or, or in, uh, just in London, or just as in New York, as it was the case in, in the USA. We had them all over the place. And I think one of the issues that raises is it leads us anybody who's looking at this to try to work out when, what went wrong, shouldn't just ask the question about the national response, how, why we were too slow to, to lock down and so on, but also ask why it was that we had a large number of outbreaks throughout the country rather than um, just a single epicentre. And I think when you do that, you come back to the question of people coming back from their holidays. Uh, the, 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 I think a lot of the evidence now is that we were hit because um, people came back from their half-term breaks in late February, early March from Spain and Italy, uh, and that seeded the, the virus around the country. So I think these are the sorts of bits of evidence that you can start to appreciate more as the crisis develops, which may give you a different take on, on what went wrong earlier in the year. And Alex, I mean, do you think you've been uh, talking a lot uh, within the IFG about a kind of a move to a more local approach? Can you see a can you see any signs of Number Ten looking at that? So, what one of the uh, I think yes, within the UK, but um, as as you uh, uh, as you say, not not so much in terms of uh, how they've uh, approached these uh, international. Um, uh, questions and in, in, in international travel. I think so. Within the UK, uh, the the f- for all the uh, sort of bumps in the road uh, um, around the Leicester uh, local lockdown, um, we're seeing a sort of uh, still difficult but slightly smoother process around Oldham and other uh, other parts of the country. Uh, I think the government has appreciated the value of giving local authorities and uh, uh, and um, uh, those who are on the ground more power uh, and more over site of these things we we saw that with the move to give local authorities you know the, the precise powers in order to um to more uh, rapidly shut down businesses and things we've also seen it in the nhs um testing uh regime where uh, the government did slightly belatedly flip from a centralized model into a local model i think they're they're seeing that this Works so sort of administratively yeah. administratively they've got it but there's still a desire to control the overall response from the center i think which we're going to go, come on in a moment to talk about. But Jill, I just wondered I mean, your thoughts on where this leaves the government's push to open up the economy, which the Prime Minister has been very, very keen about. I think it's uh, it's looking quite muddled. Um, clearly, they are under massive pressure from the travel and aviation industries to give a sort of more consistent message so that the people uh, who have booked holidays don't all cancel because basically they're saying, you know, you did this, uh, you know, and probably quite a lot of controversy within Cabinet. Grant Shapps, we saw, was a very early adopter of going on uh, international holiday while Matt Hancock was nobly kayaking in Herefordshire. So I think there may be a bit of differentiation there. But, I mean, all of these things are a bit difficult. You know, we've got the Prime Minister urging us to go to pubs to drink for Britain. We're about to get the uh, Eat Out to Help Out scheme launching next week to persuade us to go to restaurants and things like that. So the government's trying to walk a tightrope. I think uh, 
between managing the disease and managing, you know, the economic fallout and trying to nurture a, a really important economic recovery. The danger is that it can be nimbly walking along that tightrope or it can look as though it's sort of falling one way and falling the other and leaving everybody a bit sort of clueless and making up their own mind. And I think if the government is giving messages that people don't understand, don't think are fair, don't think makes sense, then the stuff that they actually got early on, which was amazingly high levels of public compliance, one of the issues for the inquiries, whether they underestimated quite dramatically the degree of public compliance. I think the risk for them is that they lose that. And already there is questioning about, do people actually just understand what the rules are where? And that's becoming an increasingly complicated picture. And I don't think the government's serving anyone very well by giving out what appear to be quite mixed messages. And I, I do think we're seeing some chickens coming home to roost from earlier in the crisis around some of the confusion and the briefings and the Dominic Cummings affair and all of that. You know, what 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 is needed is a, a sort of if you're going to walk this tightrope successfully, a sober, clear, calm communications message. And that's not what we've seen. And it feels like that is you know that that, that that's playing out now uh, to to detrimental effect. One of the real difficulties of this is that you're trying to influence individual behaviour. Um, throughout the country. And it's partly a question of people's own assessment of risks. And you know, I think, although it's true, that, uh, very true, that, we, that the messaging was very confused, on the other hand, because the UK has had such a, a grim experience, I think people do understand the risks uh, because they know people who have, have suffered and have died. Um, whereas I think one of, the, one of the reasons why the US got itself into such a mess uh, over the last month or so, was that uh, a lot of states which hadn't been so badly hit, people didn't make those uh, personal evaluations of risk and decided that the worst was over and they could go back to normal and now are getting really badly hit, if you look at Florida and Texas and so on. I, I don't think... Um, Jill made the point about uh, the government may have underestimated people's readiness to to be very careful. I think that readiness is probably still there and not that influenced by government messages. Uh, and government messages affect them in terms of, of, of holidays, maybe. But a lot of the time on masks and so on, you're really relying on people to uh, think, you know, think, well, I understand now what's going on with this and I'll, I'll do what's necessary to stay safe. Great. Well, let's use that as a chance to move into our second section um, and really discuss some points about governing from number 10 and the government's new communications attempts at, at various aspects of this, because the Spanish holiday shutdown was not the story that number 10 intended for this week. We saw this big push on the question of the nation's health, which is what the prime minister wanted to talk about. And he talked about his battles with his weight and his realization that this could have been why he was so hard hit by coronavirus. And then we got new plans this week for one of his favorite forms of transport, which is cycling. And and we got plans as well for a new, a new spokesperson. Jill, governments often come up with these kinds of health strategy. Is this one going to work? Well, uh, let's hope, because this is undoubtedly a very long-standing problem and governments for some time have been trying to deal with something about obesity. So we've never been short on uh, obesity strategies, what we have found is that governments quite often 
start talking quite big about what to do about obesity, you get some eye-catching measures. I think one of the sort of big questions is whether the eye-catching measures really add up to enough to deal with what is one of the most sort of wicked of wicked problems. Um, but then those get watered down as uh, ministers get serially lobbied, get accused of being a nanny state. People point out differential effects on the poor. They get pressure from the what we might call big food or big sugar. Uh, they get pressure from the advertising industry. And I think this prime minister also has to watch out that he might very well find himself confronted with something called an obesity research group, uh, which we may, may be a set of sceptical conservative MPs who don't particularly like the turn he is taking. Make face so if every, every kind of scepticism now attracts a research group. That, that apparently I think research term, term now, means these are opposition. Yeah. Research groups are, are sort of the new code or whatever. So, uh, so for actually, you know, we're a bit worried we about this. We don't agree with so what you're interesting, doing. You know, having launched this uh, in a very personal way and in a way where there was a bit of sort of mea culpa, you know, I used to be the person who said this was really unacceptable. I've now gone through a life-changing experience and I'm now going to use my life-changing experience to change your life. So, you know, it would be really interesting, but it will retain really sustained effort. And I think the sort of, Obesity strategy itself looks, um, I don't really want to say this, but looks rather thin when you look at the paper. It's actually quite different to the much more worked up cycling and walking strategy. But even there, uh, if you just look uh, look around where, around where we live, Bromwich, uh, you will see conservative councils quite often are some of the most sceptical about doing anything to tackle car ownership, to put in cycling lanes and some of the things that government is now saying it's going to give higher tier authorities powers to do. So I think these things cannot just be, you know, August uh, August measures. These are going to require really sustained effort over the lifetime of the parliament if the government is going to make any headway on issues which have defeated successive governments to make any real progress on. Yeah, and the prime minister is really sort of starting from behind, at least on obesity. I think there's a poll out this week that said 40% of people thought they'd put on weight during lockdown. So uh, so he's starting from further back than if he'd launched his obesity strategy on joining in Downing Street, uh, coming into Downing Street this time last year. Yeah, the new daily televised press conferences. What's what's this role going to be about? So the role appears to be that you will be the face of the government. Um, so they will be there communicating on behalf of the prime minister and the government, taking what maybe daily, the job ad actually only says regular, but uh, all the briefings says... Well, it's so speaking directly to the public on the issues they so care most about. Yeah, so it's going to be you know the model that we've seen in the US with all those correspondents sitting in a room, televised, bombarding the president's... Uh, uh, press secretary with questions. West Wing fans will recognize it from CJ Craig, great heroine to many of us. Uh, more recent names of Sean Spicer, the very brief uh, but very memorable tenure of Anthony Scaramucci. So it's going to be that sort of figure, but translated into a British context. Uh, so it's quite interesting. Uh, we did a session yesterday with, um, with journalists talking about how they'd covered coronavirus. They all denied that they were tempted to apply, even one who had appeared in a list of runners and riders. Some thoughts that it might be a woman. Uh, interestingly, maybe slightly sexistly, Tom Newton Dunn said he thought that a woman would uh, would be quite a, a sane appointment because uh, they would get less grief from the lobby hunting in a pack to beat them up because it'd be less a good looker on camera. But I think some real concerns that this will 
get number 10 to feel that they need to have a story a day to right. present at that press conference. Because and it, it drives, it, it brings its own momentum, doesn't it? But it spares the Prime Minister from having to do this, which he was doing at one yeah. point. But, but the well, Prime Minister actually has been quite sparing in his appearances. He's, uh, you know, not been out that much. So the really interesting thing is how many times is this person really on the defensive, warding off questions? The sort of things that you can read in the readouts in the lobby, but which aren't on briefing, yeah. where number 10 said something, but the poor spokesman is really on the back foot defending yeah. the independence. But as you've I described, I mean, the people in this job can have really quite a, a short professional life expectancy. Um, uh, in, the, in the States, we've seen them uh, being, uh, you know, turfed out the window. Repeated, Alex and Laurie, how, do you think this is going to make a big difference? Uh, it seems as an alternative to the private lobby. Um, I, I think, I mean, I think we, we may be over-influenced by the Trump experience in talking about this. Um, I mean, the, the White House for many years has managed perfectly successfully to have daily briefings most of the time don't uh, don't become big media events, but occasionally do when there's a story. Um, so I, I, I don't have, uh, I mean, as all these things, the, you need somebody who can choose their words carefully. And if they just sound like um, they're, they're unable to, if they sound like they're unable to talk freely, and they're just reading from a very carefully prepared script all the time, then the journalists will lose interest and so will everybody else. So I think it's one of the, it'd be an interesting way to see if we can actually get more transparency or if it's in effect a way of um, uh, of dampening down interest in, in what's going on because it all gets so boring. Yeah. One of the... Um... In the British context, one of the interesting things is the Prime Minister's official spokesperson now is a civil service appointment. I mean, they have been journalists, they have been people who you might think are politically aligned, but it's a civil service appointment which restricts what they can say. Um, this and, you know, that they are reliant on the government line. <laughs> This will be a political appointment, and so they'll be able to range far more freely and be expected to answer questions much more generally on the political scandal of the day, the um, uh, the, uh, the, the the sort of the, the the prime ministers. They'll be more personally associated with 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 the prime minister, which which comes to the other point on on this. I mean, it, it, since time immemorial, it has been a fact of life in government that prime ministers swoop in and take announcements uh, from uh, secretaries of state who've been uh, happily gearing up for their moment uh, in in the sun. I think this 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 makes that more likely, but it does mean that the prime minister and number ten will be more more and more personally associated with announcements like we saw with the obesity uh, strategy this week, which might be something they uh, eventually come to uh, come to regret. It's well, quite interesting that the obesity strategy and the cycling strategy were both announced when the health secretary and the transport secretary you might have expected to play some role in those were on holiday. So literally enjoying their moment in the sun rather than... Uh, or not, or not. <laughs> quarantine. <laughs> but you're right, it, 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 uh, it, it didn't give them their... Let's use that as a, as a pivot to talk about our, our final uh, subject on inquiries and the inquiry on coronavirus to which the government has now committed itself. And Laurie, I'm particularly glad to have you with us for this. We don't know who is going to chair it. We don't know when it's going to happen, but we do already know quite a lot of the questions it needs to answer. And to discuss this, we're also going to be joined by our expert on all things to do with inquiries, Emma Norris, our Director of Research. Emma, thanks for dropping in. Hi, Bronwyn. Um, so, Emma, let me throw it to you. I mean, is deciding on the who, who will chair it the first question or the time frame or the remit? 
So the first act when you're setting up an inquiry, once you've announced it's going to take place, is to appoint a chair and then set out the date that the inquiry is going to start. Um, So if you like, the chair is the first big decision for this inquiry. Who does the government want to chair the public inquiry? Um, And one of the decisions will be, do they want it to be a judge? Um, Judges tend to be the chairs of choice for inquiries. Or do you want it to be somebody else? Um, chair uh, judges have lots of um, lots of benefits. They're you know very clearly politically independent. They've got experience of running hearings, of uncovering facts, and so on, which is why they're such popular choices. But I think there are some drawbacks um, to choosing judges as chairs too. Not least because you know as a result of their training, the kind of experiences that judges have, they tend to see the end of an inquiry as the end of their role. Um, judge chairs don't tend to play any role in implementation, whereas in some of the inquiries that haven't been chaired by judges, um, Lord Bichard's inquiry into the Sower murders, um, Baron Lamming's inquiry into the Victoria Klimbay case, they played a big role after the inquiry had reported in trying to get government to listen to the recommendations and to follow them up. So, yeah, the big choice will be who's going to chair it um, and why. Laurie, how, how would you like to see the government go about this? Um, well, um, I was part of an inquiry. There was a Privy Council inquiry. Um, that uh, didn't involve judges, and the judges were very cross about that uh, because they thought they were far better at asking questions than we were. Um, We were told by quite a lot of the witnesses that if it had been a judicial inquiry, they would have turned up with their lawyers and said yes, no, or I can't remember. Whereas I think when you take it away from a judicial setting, you're able to get to interrogate more, to get people to talk more freely, to unload themselves. And I don't think actually the big issues in this are going to, well, even with Iraq, there was an issue of whether there was some grand level criminality involved. I don't think that's the issue here. The issue is is errors or problems in, in public policy making. So personally, uh, I wouldn't make it a judicial inquiry. I, um, I think you, the, the, partly, I mean, again, with, with, with Chilcot, I mean, the chairman was announced with the four other panel members and they were sort of trying to get a balance of experience and expertise and that's what uh, that I think will be the big issue here I think it's the chairman obviously is incredibly important um, but so too are getting the uh, getting a balance uh, of, of panel members because if we're not going to have another Chilcott is obviously a bit guilty on this another inquiry that seems to go on a long time you're going to have a lot of strands of work going on at the same time. And my suspicion is you'd probably need different panel members in charge of different strands of work. Because if one person is supposed to get a grip of it all and and, uh, give some sort of authoritative pronouncement when you've got a whole range of types of issues uh, from clinical and and, and public health to international uh, international relations and, and agreements, uh, to uh, behavioural uh, social science, it, it's going to be very difficult, I think, to uh, for somebody just to, just to get their head around all of that. So I think it'll have to be a collective effort, a lot of work going on at the same time. Some of that work, I think, should already have started. I, think, you know, I would hope on issues like testing and PPE, they're learning pretty hard already from from the mistakes or the problems that they faced earlier on. So I don't necessarily think past models are going to be the best guide as to how how this should uh, 
can go forward. Fine, I mean, I, this, there's absolutely no reason for official secrecy here. This can be a pretty transparent inquiry. A lot of the information is already out there. But from what you've described, I mean, the, the scale of it already, the different flanks of questions, if you like, that, that's already a problem. And so, therefore, the timing might be as well of whether this can actually conclude uh, in a time scale to be reasonably useful even within this, this term of government. Emma, what's your thinking on the, the timing? I think it's unrealistic to believe that you can have a concluded inquiry in time to influence a second wave. That's why a lot of the important learning should be going on independent of any inquiry. An inquiry is a way of um, taking stock, of providing some accountability and authoritative conclusion. We don't want to wait forever for it, but there's no point in, uh, <coughs> in, in, in rushing it. You know, that was the mistake Chilcott made anyway. It was, it was because we tried to get an inquiry finished quickly uh, and then realised well, you couldn't, yeah. it, it went on so long. Emma, do you agree? Because you, you've been pushing for a rapid uh, first inquiry. That's Review, right. So review. I, yeah. The way I think about this is that it is exactly as Laurie said. I think that there needs to be learning happening right now um, to inform government's response to a second wave. And there's no way that a full public inquiry is going to be able to um, be established and start running in time to answer those questions for a second wave. So I think we should have a rapid review that really starts running right now and on a non-statutory basis, looking at how can we learn from what's happened so far to better inform um, ourselves, better prepare ourselves for a second wave. I consider that separate to a full public inquiry that I'm sure isn't going to begin until at least some point next year. And I think for that full public inquiry, one of the most difficult challenges is going to be, can it report in time to have impact? Um, and I think a couple of things point to this being a public inquiry that's going to run over a really long period. First of all, it depends what happens this autumn and how long a period of COVID an inquiry has to examine. Um, it might not be able to get going until very late next year. The inquiry also has the potential to cover such a huge amount of ground. Laurie's already outlined some of the questions that it might consider. So the scope could be so broad that the inquiry could easily run on for, you know, six, seven years. And I think added to that, the government's probably unlikely to want an inquiry to report just before a general election. But personally, I think that a really long inquiry that runs six, seven years plus would be a mistake. I think to, you know, to have impact, to make change, you need an inquiry that runs for just a few years, not for a decade, um, at which point everything's moved on. So I consider putting in a deadline for the final report in the terms of reference. I consider publishing an interim report exactly as Laurie has described. I consider having a panel that can look at different questions concurrently to try and speed things up. I think we want to avoid this being an inquiry that runs on forever. Laurie, let me just come back to you on that. And I was really struck by something you've written already on the coronavirus, saying that, look, the UK had put really quite a lot of effort into analysing the vulnerability to all kinds of diseases based on, on previous threats of SARS and bird flu and, 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 and so on. And it thought it was no slouch at that. It really uh, it, you know, had, had, had put some effort in. So how do you actually get something out of an inquiry that is useful? Well, one of the difficulties is that the, the, we had big lessons learned exercises after SARS um, the swine flu, the swine flu epidemic in you know, 2009-10 was very influential. We learned the wrong lessons. Uh, <laughs> well, one of the lessons was don't be alarmist. Yeah, don't be, don't be, be alarmist. As bad as, bad as the scientists say. We learned, that, uh, we learned that lesson. We learned Sar that lesson. SARS, but it was wrong. SARS was confined to, um, to Asia. Uh, so, you know, we've got to be very... 
there's no sort of dogmatic conclusions you come from from all of this. Uh, and I think you know the first lesson to learn is to pay close attention to the the details of what you're you're facing now, rather than just assume it's going to be like the last time. I think the 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 other point, which I think mean, we're we're in agreement here with Emma, is the um, it's not just a question of having panel members that can do a lot of issues. You need a big staff, and I think you need a research budget. There's an awful lot of work going on at the moment, masses of work already going on at the moment, analysing what's happened, uh, how the outbreaks occurred. Uh, you, an inquiry doesn't need to go over all of that again. You can, you can draw on much of the research that's being done. So I, I don't see any reason why this should, this should go on one to two years. And I say that having you know, <laughs> been told that's how long I w- we would have. Uh, so long as you, as you put in the resources and, and, and the, the staff and the panel to make sure that it can be, um, that, that lots of issues can be addressed all at once rather than uh, going through them, them all one after the other. Wait, so ju- just to be clear, you think it should be done within two years? Oh, I, I don't see any reason why it can't be done within two years if you have the budget and people. But you can't, if, if you yeah. have a, a, sm- a small staff and, uh, and uh, a panel that, that, that is largely reviewing what the staff does, then it's going to take a long time. Yeah. Of course, if it overran on that, it, it just, just as uh, Emma's saying, it'd be right up against a, a general election. Alex and Jill, just briefly as we wrap this up, what, what about the blame game? We've already seen barbs thrown at Public Health England. Uh, half the press was jumping on it at one point. It seems we've seen the departure of the Cabinet Secretary. Will the looming inquiry um, add some fuel to this kind of um, uh, tension within within government between ministers civil servants and the rest i'm sh- i'm sure it will uh, i think um i'm just on, on on the timing point i agree with everything that um uh, lawrence and emma were saying but events happen and uh, i wouldn't be at all surprised to see uh, events getting in the way of um <clears throat> this inquiry re- reporting rapidly much as i agree with that on 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 uh, the kind of wider blame game i think there's there's something about the culture of uh, the culture of british politics the culture of this government um that is uh, even when mistakes are acknowledged and acted on, um, uh, they're not um, uh, they're not sort of admitted to in in public. Um, so there is something that I, I think it would it would be healthier if um, uh, if if ministers, uh, civil servants could uh, work together and be more open about the mistakes that were that were made and actually think about these things in a less personal way, in a more organisational way. Perhaps Public Health England isn't fit for purpose, but that that that, that um, doesn't need to be uh, kind of portrayed as this battle in, in, and briefed out as uh, in an incredibly antagonistic way. I'm probably being um, Panglossian and, um, uh, and uh, far too idealistic, um, but I, I would like to see things change a bit. Yeah. Never. We'll have that conversation separately, Alex. But just, to, just, to, just to be clear, culture of this government or government culture of British government in general. I think so. I think both, but I think this government has exacerbated it, and the the, the briefings, the, um, uh, the 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 style, the departure of Mark Sedwell um, uh, and other uh, permanent secretaries, not not in itself unusual, but the way it's happened um, is uh, is is uh, particularly kind of acerbic in this government. I think. Yes, I think I'm going, to, I'm going to agree with Alex. I think this government isn't going to wait for the conclusions for an inquiry to decide for itself who it uh, it thinks uh, was to blame and how it will going to shake things up. So I think we're going to see, uh, you know, potentially a big look at Public Health England, um, uh, where ministers are always saying 
They didn't control public health England. The problem for them is when they look at it in any more depth, they will discover that they always did control public health England. Um, but I think we'll find uh, something done there. It'd be interesting to see if they look quickly at the sort of structure of science advice and how that happens, because one of the one of the sort of conundrums of uh, paradoxes of coronavirus is the UK has always been very pleased that we have what we might describe as a world-beating system of science advice to ministers, but uh, seems to have actually hobbled us this time round rather than helped enormously, made, perhaps made us a bit less precautionary than we might otherwise have been. Uh, they've already signalled that they think it's exposed loads of flaws in the civil service and there's a big agenda reform programme landing on the desk of the incoming cabinet secretary to shake up the civil service and make sure those mistakes don't happen uh, next time. So I'm not sure the government's going to hang around and wait for the inquiry. And of course, with the Chilcot inquiry, when we finally, finally, finally got the report and you took it to departments, one of the things that people kept on saying was, yes, we've already acted on that. We've actually already acted on that. We've already acted on that. So, uh, so that can be a positive that you don't wait where you've actually diagnosed those early lessons, as Emma was saying, but I don't think this government's going to wait for someone else to give them the verdict on who was to blame. I think they've, to an extent, already made up their own mind. Mm. And we'll use the inquiry to, um, uh, to 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 support that. Laurie, l- last thought on on that uh, that portrait from Jill on the motivation. Yeah, and, and in a way, no, you know, if there's things to be done with Public Health England and so on, then, then I think the science get on with it. The, the, the scientific advice process is already changing as a result of, of what's happened over the last six months. It's much more elaborate, more organised now. Um, so the changes have got to happen as things go on. I think, you know, one final point. You know, the, 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 the finale of this, we hope, is going to be a, a vaccinations programme. Um, it's worth keeping in mind, one, that this, in terms of all the things we've been talking about, managing that is going to be a major issue politically and administratively. Um, but it could also be considered, maybe in the end, a big success for British biomedical science. Um, so I, I, I suspect, uh, we, we've talked about the Iraq inquiry, there was the Falklands inquiry as well, um, in which all the mistakes, uh, and there had been many which got us in, into a war, was sort of overshadowed by the fact that in the end we won. Um, uh, now, I won't put, uh, given what's happened uh, to the population, this in the same light as that. Uh, but you are actually seeing at this stage of the crisis some of the strengths of the UK coming through, in, in particularly in biomedical science. And I suspect the government will want those things to be looked at, uh, uh, as well as the more obvious problems with care homes and testing and PPE and so on. Well, thank you for that. I'm sure we'll come back to those points. But with that, that's the end of this week's Inside Briefing. My huge thanks to Jill Rutter, Alex Thomas, Emma Norris, and particular thanks to Sir Lawrence Friedman. Thank you all for listening at home. If you want to hear more of our discussions, and please do check out our sister podcast, IFG Live. Jill chaired a terrific all-star panel of journalists this week on how the media managed coronavirus. You can watch or listen back to that. And you can catch up on our panel discussion on how the government can make a success of the new Foreign Commonwealth and Development Office. You can listen at Apple Podcasts, Acast, Spotify, wherever you get your podcasts. Do leave us a review. And you can find all our work at our website, instituteforgovernment.org.uk. With that and the temperature rising, the literal temperature, not the political temperature, even if not quite to Spanish levels, have a very good weekend. See you next week.